He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's just imagine that we all did that perfectly in unison as if we were together. Happy Easter. It really is an honor and a pleasure to be with you in your home as you celebrate the risen Jesus together as a family. Obviously, this is a different Easter for us as we're not able to be physically together because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm already starting to anticipate what the moment will be like, not only when I hear the news about the quarantine being lifted, but experience the lifting itself. I mean, imagine the parties that we'll be able to throw, the high fives, the hugs, the celebration, going to parks and on hikes, all those things that we physically get to do that we're not able to do. And that anticipation that we're in those few weeks thus far, it's, it just continues to build anticipation for that longing as time goes. So I want you to imagine that anticipation building, not just for days and weeks or even months, but what it would be like if there was a, long, a fulfillment that you were waiting to be uh, find and realize that you were longing for anticipation that didn't just happen for in your lifetime, but it was part of your family story. It was a generational desire and longing that you passed down from generation to generation. And imagine what it would be like in that moment to hear news that the quarantine was not only being lifted, but it was about to be fulfilled and realized. We've been in the middle of a series that we're calling Flourish, which is based off of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and it's his vision for human flourishing in the kingdom. If you want to know the good life, how life works best, you look to the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' explanation for that. So as we've been in this, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 17. Let me tell you where we're going, and then we're going to give some context to this passage and then flesh it out. In this passage, Jesus presents himself as the better giver of the law. He's the better prophet of God, and he's the better fulfillment of the longings that we anticipate coming about. So Jesus is the better giver of the law. He's the prophet of God, and he's the better fulfillment. And I'm going to ask you in a little bit a question based on these truths that are presented in Matthew that depending on how you answer that has the ability to dramatically change your life forever. Matthew chapter 5, if you want to open up your Bible, we'll be in starting in verse 17. But let, like I said, let me give you some context. There's some hints and clues that Matthew has been presenting all along that point us to something that we don't naturally see, but Jesus' listeners and the readers of Matthew's gospel would have understand. And these are all pointing to one of the primary characters in Israel's story, with the name of Moses. You're probably familiar with his story. But all along, Jesus is presented as the better Moses. And Matthew has been giving us clues along the way. For instance, both of them 
um, are having to flee from newborns being killed. Moses had to do it, and Jesus had to do it. Both of them were had Egypt as the place of their childhood. Both of them are called by God and presented by God as the Savior and Redeemer of the people. And specific to this passage, both of them go up on a mountain, receive the, the law, and now present the law to the people. So Jesus just goes up on the mountain and he proclaims this new law. Moses went up to Mount Sinai and he proclaimed that law as a prophet to his people, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So with this background of Jesus being a better Moses, I want to read this passage. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is what? Accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so in this passage, Jesus is presented as the fulfiller. But in that, he's presented as the better giver of the law. It was very commonly understood that the law and the prophets at this time and what he's saying was the full fulfillment and the fullness of God's covenant. The law being what Moses gave to his people on Sinai, the prophets were the prophetic interpretations and implementation along the story of Israel. And so what Jesus is doing, he's saying, yeah, you know those. I'm not abolishing them. I'm not taking them away. I have come to fulfill them. And in fulfilling them until they are accomplished, in the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus goes about upping the ante. He goes about saying, hey, you've heard it said, and he gives an example. But then he says, but I say to you, you may have heard this through the law, but I'm now going to increase and make it even more profound and not just give you rules to follow, but um, intentions to be understood. That it's not just about following these rules externally, although it does include that. It's about the inward disposition of how and why you do what you do. You've heard it said, but I say to you, he's the better giver of the law. And this, this law and prophets that these people were listening to, this was the standard for them about what it meant to be good. There were people specifically in mind who were those that were good. And Jesus addresses them in verse 20 in the scribes and the Pharisees. And what does he say? Your righteousness has to exceed them. So if you think that there's a standard of good, he's telling these people, 
It actually, you need to be more good than that. Now, Jesus is addressing this primarily Jewish context with an understanding of good based on the Mosaic law. And what I think is also happening both here and the rest of scriptures is Jesus isn't just doing that. He's addressing all standards of what it means to be good. What does it mean to be right? What are the standards that you and all of humanity have of what it means to be good? Because you may be saying, yeah, the, the Bible's outdated. This is old standards. You may even be of the opinion that based on certain teachings of the scripture, that this is immoral. That there's another teaching that's more moral because these are ignorant and biased um, and bigoted. Okay? So whatever your standard is, whether it's scriptures or it's something else, you have a standard of what it means to be good and live the good life. This is true of all humanity. But not just that you have a law or a standard of good. I want to submit to you this. Regardless of what it is, none of us are able to keep the standard by which we live according to. Have you ever fudged a little bit of the rules because you couldn't keep the rules? Have you ever had a standard that you find yourselves in moments where you yourself don't live up to that standard? So regardless of the standard, regardless of the perfect life or the good life, there's something about humanity that holds us back from living the life that you and I desire. There's something that diminishes our humanity from living the good life. So Jesus isn't just presented as the better giver of the law in the vein of Moses. He's also presented as the better prophet of God. In Exodus chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, Moses is called a prophet. And Moses was one of the heroes of the faith. He was in many ways the standard bearer because he was God's vessel used by him to redeem and free the Israelites from slavery. And so if a prophet is somebody that hears from God and proclaims that truth to others, okay, hears from God and proclaims, Jesus is not just hearing and proclaiming, Jesus is actually going about it in a completely different way throughout his uh, ministry. Because he's coming across it not just as the implementer of the law. He's just not claiming to be the teacher of the Torah. What he's saying goes beyond that. What he's saying is all of these things, all of the law, all of the prophets, in Luke 24, he says, all of the scriptures point to me. He's not just one of in the midst of all the others. He's not an equal to Moses. He's not an equal to Elijah or Elisha or Jeremiah or Isaiah. What he's saying is, no, 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 no. I've come not just to continue to proclaim them as they did. I've come to fulfill all that they have desired. He 
is the one that everything points to. So he is the better prophet. He is the better lawgiver. And in doing these, what he's doing is he's raising the bar. He's raising the standard. And he does it in a way that is so high that you and I, if we lean into doing these things that he teaches, we realize that we don't have the ability within us to accomplish it. We just don't. Jesus doesn't nullify the law. He doesn't diminish them. He brings them to a height that isn't just external life. It's internal motivation. So why can't we live according to the standards? The Bible has a word for this, and it's, an, um, it's the word sin. Now, I know sin for a lot of people is a dirty word, so let me just unpack that for a moment. Sin is a few different things. First, sin is a willful rebellion against God. If God is the giver of life, God is the one who created and sustains all the world. It's a willful rebellion to say, yeah, if you think this is good, I'm going to go ahead and create my own standard. What you say, I actually think this is better. So it's a rebellion against the giver of life. It's not only that, though. It's a parasite. It's parasitic in that it attaches to something that is good and perverts it, distorts it, makes what is good evil. So sin has a parasitic nature, but it also is a virus. It is a virus that has resulted in a worldwide pandemic that has gone on since its conception in the garden. And what Jesus is saying in his ministry is if you and I are going to have a life that is flourishing, something has to be done about sin. And you and I don't have the power. What Jesus is also teaching here is that the law itself doesn't have the power. It as Paul says in Romans, it reveals in us that what sin is, we wouldn't have known that we didn't meet the standard unless we knew that there was a standard, that this is a good thing. I mean, can you imagine worshiping somebody that has a standard for you, but you don't even know what the standard is? That's cruel. But God isn't like that. God gives the standard but there's the reality that because of our sin, because of our rebellion and a, a parasite and a virus that holds us back, we are not able to meet the standard and we don't have the power to do it. And so what does God do with that? Does God just leave us out there and say, hey, you figure it out. I hope you're able to be good enough. We'll see you after you die. No, that's not what God is like we see a better understanding and a fulfillment of this in Romans chapter 8. What does God do with it? What is God going to do about sin? That's part of what the Israelites were longing for. God, there's this evil within me. What are you going to do about it? I can't do it. I've been trying. The Pharisees tried to do it by following every specific rule. There were those that rebelled against the rules, and that's how they said, no, that's bad rules. I'm going to create good rules. 
And so they live to that, but like you and me, even they couldn't live to that standard that they created for themselves. Something has to be done about sin. And so what is God going to do? Romans 8, verse 3, listen to this. For, what, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You following whatever standards you have is not good enough for you to be in relationship with a pure, holy, perfect God. You get in his presence and that pureness will destroy you. That is death. And what does it say? You and I could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and what? For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Brothers and sisters, friends, family, wherever you are, please hear this. You and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. We rebel against the giver of life, which results in death. We cannot live up to the standard which we set, whether it's based in scriptures or it's based on our own. We do not have the capability. But listen to this. This is good news for you. God knew that you could not. God knew that you could not deal with sin on your own. So what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus himself. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived an absolutely perfect life. He lived according to the highest of standards by never sinning, by never rebelling, by never falling and re- uh, into his own fleshly desires. And in his perfection, he went to the cross by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That Jesus took our sin and he paid the penalty for it on the cross. He sacrificed himself willingly out of love for you. I mean, the amazing thing about this sacrifice is that there's something about us that all know and all desire it. We look at our stories. We look at our movies about those who willingly and personally sacrifice themselves for the benefit of others. In the midst of this pandemic, we think of the doctors and the nurses and the grocery store clinics that are willingly putting themselves on the line. And we thank them and we celebrate them because that ultimately points to the sacrifice of Jesus. But think of the movies that we love. There's something in our DNA that longs for this type of sacrifice. Whether it's Frodo and Lord of the Rings, it's Harry Potter and his sacrifice, it's Iron Man in Endgame, or it's Anna in Frozen 1, or Elsa in Frozen 2, whether it's Bing Bong from Inside Out, Harry Stamper in Armageddon, Spock in Star Trek, all of them willingly sacrifice themselves for the benefit of their friends. 
And Jesus is coming along and he's saying he's not just one of those stories. Jesus in saying he's the fulfillment is that all of these stories that are deeply written in our hearts, the scripture says eternity is written on our hearts, all of them ultimately point to Jesus' death on the cross for your and my sin. It wasn't just a friend who died, but it was God himself who died on the cross for you and for me. So in his perfect life, he showed us what it meant to be fully God and fully man. In his death, he was the sacrifice and the substitute for our sin. He took on our sin and he gave us his righteousness. He took on our brokenness and he gave us his wholeness. He took on our rebellion and now adopts us into a family that loves eternally. And so the question is, why did he do this? I don't want to pass this. He knows you can't live up to the standard, but he still did it. Why? While you and I are yet sinners, Christ showed his what? Love for us in this. He died on the cross. God so loved the world that he loves you even in the midst of your brokenness. And in his love, he showcased that ultimately on the cross for your sins. And what do you have to do to earn that love? Nothing. That's the scandal of the gospel of Jesus in that it is a free, gracious gift that you don't have to earn, that you don't have to live up to a certain standard, that Jesus lived up to that standard on your behalf. And so in doing that, in dying on the cross, in your place out of love for you as a gracious gift to you, if we were to just stop there, we would be missing something unbelievably, unbelievably important. Paul actually says it this way. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching in is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. It's not just that Jesus perfectly lived. It's not just that he died in your place forgiving your sins. It's that he physically and bodily rose from the dead. He was victorious over sin itself. He took, he condemned sin on the cross and now in his resurrection is victorious over it. Our greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death are now under the feet of Jesus because he, in his power, rose from the dead. And so this is the question that changes everything. It's not just that do you think that Jesus lived. It's not just do you think that Jesus died. It's this question. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? That question changes everything. If not, then people like me, our faith is futile. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, then everything changes. It is the story that changes all other stories. It is the fulfillment that all anticipation and longing find their hope in. 
Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And this is what his resurrection gives us. Hope. Hope. Because we know that in his defeat of our greatest enemies, that one day he will come back and he will renew and restore all of creation. He will completely wipe away every sin. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more sin and we will walk in a new heaven and new earth with new bodies with him forever in the way that he always designed the earth to be. So regardless of what happens to my bank account or my 401k or my physical health, no matter what happens in those things, I know I am secure because I am in Christ. And now, as I wait for that new hope, as I live into that, I am now given the Spirit of God so that He can empower me to live in His ways as He empowered Jesus to live in His ways. Did Jesus raise from the dead? That is the question. And this is what I implore you. This is what I urge you to not only ask that question, But in doing so, what does that mean for you? It means that if this is true, that the creator God of heavens and the earth loves you so much that he willingly sacrificed himself so that you could be in relationship with him, so that your sins can be covered, so that you can be empowered to walk in new life. That is a love, a grace that is a gift extended and offered to you. It is an invitation that you have an opportunity right now, this morning, wherever you are, to accept, to open that gift. And in opening it, which means by placing your faith or your trust or your dependence in Jesus as the one who has paid the sacrifice for your sins and who rose again victorious, that you not only uh, realize that he is your savior, but now he is your Lord. He's the one that motivates and fuels and directs your life. By placing your faith in Jesus, you are now brought into a union with him. You're given a new identity. You now have new brothers and sisters that have the same father who loves you and graciously is with you every moment of every day. That is the offer presented to you this morning. So do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? This is what I'm going to ask of you. If you're watching this live, below this, there is a comment box. I want you to ask that question in the coming minutes. Darian is going to, and her brother are going to sing another song, and then we're going to sing one more song celebrating that Jesus, the uh, stone has been, uh, that Jesus has been lifted from the grave. In those few minutes before we send you to take communion, church family, what I want you to do is I want you to ask the question, do I believe Jesus rose from the dead? Whether it's your first time or it's you've had dozens of Easter gatherings, this is what I invite you to do. Not only in your heart, but I want you to physically set right out in the comment box, I place my faith in Jesus. I want you, invite you, and in saying that, 
in your heart you're saying, yes, I believe in the life, death, resurrection in my place for my sins, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what I'm longing for, and I now want to be his child, empowered by him to walk in his ways. So by putting in the comment box, I place my faith in Jesus, you're now coming into a new way of life that has new power and that results in forgiveness of sins of what you and I are incapable to do. So as we sing, reflect, think, even pray, do I want to do that? Do I, am I willfully choosing to do that? Is, do I feel that God is drawing my heart to do that? And when you are at the moment where you say, yes, I do, in that box, I want you to say, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. If it's your first time, I encourage you, if you know someone that's part of Soma Fredaway, if you know any Christian, I encourage you immediately to let them know that you're doing this. So let me pray for you, and then I want to send you to a time of reflection together, and then we'll celebrate communion in the end. Father, thank you that you are the giver of life. Father, we know because of our willful rebellion that we now have a virus of sin that limits us from living into the standard that you have created for us. And the wages of that sin is death. Because we rebel against you, giver of life, we get death. But in your grace, in your love, Jesus, you lived on our behalf, perfectly living up to the standard. You died in our place for our sins and you rose again victorious over sin, Satan, and death. You've sent your spirit now to remind us of our new identity and empower us to walk in your ways until you return to recreate the new heavens and new earth in our, and give us our renewed bodies. And so this morning I pray for my friends, I pray for my family, I pray for those watching that we will choose to place our faith, trust, and dependence on you, that it is only through you that we can have a flourishing life because only through you are our sins forgiven and are we made whole. So Father, I pray by your spirit, you are drawing many people to yourself right now. Jesus, we do this out of worship and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name.